Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Benjamin R. Lewick Leadership Podcast, where we believe everyone deserves exceptional leadership. Benjamin brings more than 25 years of leadership and team development experience to the table as he sits down to chat with other seasoned industry leaders and talk through real workplace issues. In each episode, Benjamin identifies action steps that you can start using right away as a leader to address the things that affect personnel, productivity, and profitability. Join us in today's episode as we explore practical and tactical ways that you can create a workplace environment that increases revenue, productivity, and motivation while decreasing stress and personnel churn. Are you ready? Exceptional leadership starts in three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Benjamin, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Before we dive into the conversation with my guest today, I want to remind you to be sure and stick around to the end of the episode. I'll be doing a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's conversation for you and wrapping up everything with a concise summary. I'm really excited about the content we're sharing with you today, so let's get this conversation started. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I have got an amazing guest for you today. You are not going to want to tune away from this episode. Marty Strong is a retired Navy SEAL combat veteran CEO and serves on two corporate boards. He is a creativity and leadership consultant, motivational speaker, and the author of nine novels and two business leadership books. Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield in Business was released in January of 2022. And his newest book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, released a few months ago in January of 2023. Marty suffered the loss of his oldest son, beat cancer twice, and has been shot at in a few exotic countries. He spent a lifetime meeting challenges head-on, succeeding in three professions, anticipating crisis, and leading through chaos. Marty, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Hey, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. It is amazing to hear of, of all of the things that you've done. Is there anything that you'd care to expound on to kind of set as the backdrop for our conversation today? <laughs> Probably the last part of that bio, the, uh, the leading through chaos. It, you know, sometimes you create the chaos. Sometimes you create the crisis. To me, to me a crisis is an event that's more technical and more, uh, you know, short duration that um, you have to solve, you know, mechanically. Chaos is is kind of the environment. It's like the white noise. It's it's the the weather, the storm, the you know, too much information, not enough information. All those kind of atmospherics. And I found that in all those different professions that you uh, just read off, those two things are are constant. And it seems to be what leaders, if they are worth their salt, end up having to do, as opposed to managers who usually aren't trained or expected to deal with those asymmetrical issues and concerns. Absolutely. So I got to ask, what inspired you to write so many novels? And then, of course, a couple of professional books as well. Is that something that you started while you were in service or something that you launched into after you transitioned away from the Navy SEALs? It was after I got out of the out of the Navy after 20 years. The I've always liked writing. I've always loved reading. I'm one of these, I read like 60 books a year. Probably 40 of them are, are fiction and the others are nonfiction. I'm in a constant state of reading about five or six books, either on my Kindles, Audible, I don't really carry around hardcovers anymore, but I've been a consumer of other people's writing for a long time. So I thought that uh, it'd be interesting and fun. And I did a lot of technical writing in the Navy. I seem to have some ability in that area, which if anybody who's listening has been in the military, if you show any ability anywhere, you end up getting that work. <laughs> so if you're, if you're good at writing, you end up being assigned lots of writing projects. And if you're a real big person, you end up carrying the biggest machine gun. It's just the way it works. So yeah, the... Uh, the itch was there. 
And I I, uh, I read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek in 2017. And I did the 7-Day uh, kind of life survey inventory of what I was spending my time on trying to look for wasted time, low value activities. And that's basically Ferris was saying that that's how you can find the time you say you don't have to do the things you really want to do. And I found there was about an average of two hours a day over a seven day period. And mostly I was just watching, it wasn't garbage, but I was watching things like um, investment news channels and listening to CNBC and other investment shows um, on satellite radio when I was driving to and from work. Well, I'm, I have been managing money you know, I stopped managing money at EVS after eight years a long time ago. But what I basically did was I was picking up all these these habits. And so I'm reading everything about geopolitical strife and, and you know, potential wars, and all this stuff I read about and, and wanted to be expert in, in the Navy. And then, and then I'm listening to and reading everything I can get my hands on about economics and finance and the markets. I just never got rid of it. I mean, I just kept piling on more and more stuff. And that's where I found all my wasted time. I really, I could live without paying attention to any of that. It had nothing to do with my day job. So yeah, that freed me up to make my bucket list because he expresses that you need to have a, a living bucket list and and then live your bucket list while you have the the health and the income. And everything on his bucket list was all trips as his examples. Well, I've been all over the place, 40, 44 plus countries. So I wanted to be able to play the guitar, learn Spanish fluently. I've, I've learned it many times, but to really get fluent at it. And I wanted to write a novel. So I figured a novel was probably the easiest thing to do since I do have a full-time job. Yep. And I carved out 5.30 to about 7 o'clock every morning, seven days a week, and started writing You know, as a discipline. And I got through the first book, and I kind of looked around and said, hey, I could do this again. So with no intention of making it a series. And so I made, did the second book, um, time travel, science fiction books. And then oh. thought maybe I'll take a stab at a seal book. So then I'll I did tell my, my first. Wife about that. That's like one of my wife's absolute favorite genres of stuff. Really? Time travel, oh, yeah. sci-fi you, stuff. <laughs> I write all my uh, fiction under M.L. Strong and all and my business books are under Marty Strong. But it's the Time Warrior saga. So it's about going back in time. And uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting mix. So all, all of a sudden I'm off to the races and I'm writing one right after the other. I'm doing like two time travel books, then my first SEAL novel. Again, not thinking I was going to do a series. They were, they were really well received and people were saying, when's the next book coming out? So I thought, well, okay, I'll write a second seal book. And then I wrote a third time travel. So I didn't, when I ended up last summer, the fifth seal book came out and I had four in the time travel series. And I ended that. I mean, I could probably go back and kickstart it again. I didn't get, I mean, it didn't die or something. So you, you have to be smart about that. You never know when anyone oh, yeah. might go back to that, that same well. But yeah, it just became kind of like brushing my teeth, you know. It was a struggle for me the first two or three months and also re- realized that you can't write too many words before your mind starts to run out of input and, I, and insight. If you force it like it's a term paper and say, I have to get a certain volume down, you you lose the muse, you lose the, the angle. So I'd read a couple paragraphs of what I wrote the day before, start writing. And if I got to a point where the flow just kind of stopped, sometimes it was 100 words, sometimes it was 400 words. Once in a great while, it was more than that. I'd stop. And walk away because I knew it was going to be back the next day. So I was staying hungry and interested in my own the story I was writing. I wanted to see where it was going to go. Absolutely. Didn't read that anywhere. It just that's the way my process worked. And so, you know, that's not the same thing for the business books. That's that's drudgery trying to write those. Yeah, it's a little more, a <laughs> little more deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say you wrote one, right? So yes. yeah, I mean, 
and you have that i help i've helped two other guys write books not as a ghostwriter but just as a kind of like a mentor and and you know getting them through some of the rough patches but man you know you sit there you know you have that thought right you have your, your outline you know what you want to do you think it's valuable and then the first thing that pops here in your head is nobody's gonna want to read anything i write nobody knows who i am what you know what expertise how they, why would they buy my book you know joe schmerd you know yeah. how to how to make a million bucks in two weeks. You know who the hell is Joe Schmertz? So that's that's something you don't get with the novel. You just kind of go, well, I don't care if anybody likes it or not. This is only for sci-fi people. But yeah, that's um you're really putting yourself out there when you write a business book or any kind of non nonfiction book. It's it's you forever in print. Absolutely. I mean, especially I mean for you, obviously the things that are, that. Uh, You've talked about being nimble, being visionary, things like that. What I wrote in my antidote book about creating high-performing teams and the ecosystems that foster those high-performing teams instead of toxic environments. It's very, it's very focused, very deliberate. And a lot of times you just have to force yourself to sit down and do the work. Not, not sometimes not as much creative flow. And I would force myself to sit down. And then as I would get into it, things would start flowing. But a lot of times I had to force myself to sit down, especially during the editing and rewriting process. Um, as I was going through and, and checking and updating all of the market research that I had done and the, like the dozens of dozens of different, uh, works that I cited and things like that. It was a project, not going to lie. Yeah. I had <laughs> to, well um, <laughs> I had to kind of trick myself. I think it wasn't as hard for be visionary. I'm working on the third book. Now I, I signed the contract with the publisher for the third business book about four weeks ago. No, congratulations. And so I'm going, so thanks. So I'm going through the same process, you know, and you know how the, how long this takes, right? You get a first draft done. And for me, it's a hundred ninety to a hundred days. And then I, and I have beta readers that are reading each chapter. And so I'm, my second draft is basically input from them. They're all CEOs, people that would be consumers of what I'm writing. Yeah. And then if I've had all them kind of check off on where they think I'm going with this and there's value, then I feel pretty comfortable at the end of the second draft. And then, you know, once it gets into copy editing, I don't see it again. Then it comes out for pre-sale. There's eight months and my publisher runs an eight month pre-sale distribution setup. So it's like 16, 17 months after I put the first word, you know, in the computer to when it hits the street. And by then I'm already usually writing another book. Yep. And so I, 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 you quickly become disconnected from it. And because it's been so long, when I sit down to do the next book, I have the same kind of strange thing going on in my head. Is anybody going to care that I, about me writing about strategy? Okay, they cared. They were okay about me writing about leadership. But can I write about strategy? Or this third one, can I write about creativity? Just because I wrote about leadership and, and strategy, does that mean I'm qualified? <laughs> you know, like, what am I doing to myself? So I just try to pretend that I'm, I'm teaching a class to people that came to hear me teach the class. And I get past all that stuff and I go, yeah, not every, it's not going to be for everybody. But in my mind, I'm trying to communicate, mentor, coach a willing population that are interested and then... If I see that in my mind's eye, then I can start writing and I have no problem. Absolutely. That is, uh, yeah, it's a very deliberate process when you're working with a publisher and uh, and stuff like that. It's, uh, it, it can be, it can be challenging at times, especially when there's such a delay between when you initially draft it and then if they want you to go out on tour and promote the book and things like that, you're like, okay, I'm going to have to read it again and remember what I wrote. <laughs> I know it's, yeah. And, and for them, because it takes so long. In pre-sale, every interview I have, it's like, well, someday when my book comes out, you know, because it, it seemed like forever. They'd ask, so when's your book coming out? In six months. You know, it just, it was a weird process for me, you know. And then when it does come out, as you know, then you're supposed to kickstart all over again. And then it's a little bit easier to get excited about it because they could actually get access to it, you know. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, I had a wild hair uh, whenever I transitioned out of the Army. 
uh, back in uh, May of 21. And uh, I'd, I'd done a lot of writing, writing uh, SOPs, writing, because uh, I was a human resources officer uh, for the 75th Field Artillery Brigade and uh, had me writing SOPs, had me write and help writing uh, brigade and battalion level op boards, um, operations orders for missions and stuff like that. So lots and lots of writings. Absolutely true what you said. Like if they find out you can write, you get to do all the writing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I mean, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the variety in the projects and stuff. So this this book project of mine had kind of been a uh, kind of been a a passion project that I've been wanting to do for a few years. And I was like, hey, I'll go ahead and do it. And uh, not realizing, not realizing how much of a bite I was biting off, almost more than I could chew. So since it was my first like actual full length book, so transitioning transitioning slightly earlier, you're talking about the difference between crisis and chaos. You have decades of experience working as a leader as a as a team leader, um, as a mentor and things like this, what are some of the things that you've seen as a team leader are, are really key things to, to be aware of and, and, and key things to understand as a leader of a team, like looking back at the panorama, sure. several decades, you know, however many decades you have, what are some things that, that, you know, you could really kind of bring forward and shine a spotlight on and be like, Hey, as a team leader, these are the things that you need to understand and be aware of. Well, uh, this isn't a thought that I came up with. This is what I learned in, in the SEAL teams. So they call it the SEAL teams, right? And the team size, we don't, we never did anything with just one person. So the minimum team was two people, two man scout team, two man swimmer pair, um, Usually you operated in smaller teams. Even if you came in as a larger group, you broke up into smaller teams around a target. So you, you start to realize right away from observation, from the way they're training and everything, that you're only as strong as the amount of time you've put into everybody, knowing everybody else's job and knowing their own job. So if everybody only knows their own job, you don't have a team, you have a collection of individual skill sets. If somebody's, you know, weapon goes down for some reason, or let's say somebody gets wounded and that that person is a you know the one heartbeat that you had that did that one function you're in trouble immediately so you're fragile so you can have a team that's very fragile and on paper it might look like a team but it's not interconnected it's not cross-trained it doesn't really have the resilience as a team so what they do in the seals is you go through all your individual training as whatever your expertise is going to be and there's about seven or eight different categories of expertise and then and the older guys with the experience are considered like the master levels of those categories. The newer guys are put in like an apprentice position in each of those categories. And as you get more senior, you might shift over to another category, become the master of that. And by the time you become an E7 or senior enlisted guy, you've got maybe four out of the seven that you were a master in and you definitely apprenticed in the other three. And therefore that makes you a trainer, a mentor, a coach, and also a great observer of whether the team that you're looking at, whether it's your team or you're there to make a judgment call on whether the team's ready or not, you can see the cohesiveness at, at, at like the DNA level. It's not just whether they get along. It's not whether their their dance steps seem to be in sync. It's, and you, and you know, in the military, we do this all the time. You, you take, you go on a patrol and you, and they say, okay, the officer in charge just got shot. You know, all right, that's a simple example, but one, you got a wounded guy, you got to haul around. Two other guys now are, are carrying somebody and somebody's got to take charge because because they usually render the officer unable to speak. I remember that. Yeah. Um, so he can't give commands. He can't coach from the from the poncho that he's being hauled around in. And what, he, what it's designed to do is to create a, a real scenario that's going to happen. This is the crisis thing, right? That you're going to lose somebody. And if you're fragile, you, you're already breaking down. But if you're not fragile, and if you, as a leader, you prepared your team for those situations, 
everybody just picks up the slack. Everybody in a SEAL, SEAL team learns combat trauma. Everybody knows how to stabilize guys. Everybody knows how to do IVs. Everybody knows how to, and in most cases, when a guy gets hit, it's a machine gunner or, you know, a point man that's patching them up and getting them all ready for medevac. It's not the medic. The medic never gets in there because he's, if he's not right next to the guy, he doesn't need to get in there because everybody else knows how to do the basic, the basic trauma care. Right. That's a team that's not fragile. That's a team that's cohesive and it's got muscle and it's got cross training capabilities. And you can, you can convey that to anything in life, business, a family, you know, you have to look, where's your single points of failure? What are your critical skills? What are the critical categories of, of, of knowledge? And, and if you're only, you know, one person deep, you don't have a team, you have a crisis waiting to happen. So shore that up, fix that, bond that, that group together and do those exercises. You know, you can do it in a management team. You can walk into a room and say, we just lost our number one supply chain. Now what? And they go, what do you mean? It's an exercise, but I want you to spend the next 10 minutes and I'm going to come back in here. You tell me what your first steps are. And, and it trains them to realize that that can really happen. And if you've already trained them in 10 minutes, you're going to come back and they're going to have a battle plan. You know, they're going to be, cause they're, they're used to it. They're comfortable with that the crisis that get, the crisis happens in it and they recover quickly because they're resilient as a team. Really essentially training them to respond productively in that moment of, of extreme stress and, and crisis, as you talked about, you know, one of the things that I, I talk to my soldiers about and that I teach other leaders now that I'm out of the military is that people will never like when, when stress and pressure is on and you're in that moment that that significant emotional event happens, people never rise to the level of their potential. They sink to the level of their training. And as a leader, if you haven't trained them to have a baseline competency through cross training, through resiliency training, through through thinking outside the box, you know, to take disciplined initiative in the absence of specific orders, then they're not going to perform at the level they need to perform at. So I love this idea of just walking in and, and kind of throwing this impromptu brainstorming monkey wrench into the middle of the team. Be like, hey, this happened. What are you going to do about it? And they don't do it in the commercial world. They do it in the military. Every branch of the military does this. They 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 in regular formal training, they do it, you know, pilot training, you go through all kinds of, you know, systems errors and cascading effects of, of a system failing. And, and if you hit, you flip the wrong switch, it causes three other bad things to happen. And they're in simulators and the computer saying, well, this is what's going to happen if you do that dumb move. And it's so that you start slowing down and thinking through and knowing what the, the next four things that are going to be in the chain of event when you, when you flick that switch. Well, you do that with people in the military too. And we do exercises in the military all the time. What happens if you get lost? What happens if your GPS doesn't work and you had to use a map and compass? What happens? What happens? What happens? And all those what if scenarios, you start with, you know, in boot camp and you get them conditioned in the military to not expect that everything is going to go well. It's not going to go well. They expect that it's not going to go well. And when it doesn't, it's not a shock. They don't freak out. They don't go in the corner in the field position. You know, they, and they don't look to the leader for an answer. If a leader's trained that team well, the leader only has to ask the question. But if you're the one giving all the answers out, that means you don't have a group that knows what the hell is going on. So, you know, and that may be the case in the early stage of a brand new team, but you want to get it to the point where there's very rare situations where you have to actually step in and give a direction because you're, you've cultivated this, this environment where when something goes wrong, there's plenty of people that are stepping up because they know that's what, that's the job. Roll, roll your sleeves up, you know, forget whatever the plan was. This is what, what I suggest. And it does, it does work. I've, done, I've used it in lots of companies. Uh, it's not universal. So it's, that's the odd thing. If you took, if I took anybody from the Coast Guard, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Army, and I brought them into a room and I did this exercise, they wouldn't even blink. Yeah. But if you go into a normal commercial business, definitely you wouldn't happen to regular government, you know, or academia. But 
went into a regular commercial business and you ran that exercise, the first thing they would all do is they would look right at the assigned leader. They'd be like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and there's two reasons they do that. One, they probably haven't been taught holistically enough to have a, a halfway decent idea, you know, a judgment and, and from wisdom. So they don't want to open their mouth for that reason. The second thing is nobody wants the accountability of saying something that could, could fail. So they load all the risk on the leader. You know, they, uh, my hands are off this thing. You call it, you call the shots because that's, you know, that's your job. My job is not to do that. So and I yeah. Think too, I think too, one of the things that you really highlighted there is that that aversion to accountability really speaks to a culture that makes people afraid to own things, makes people afraid of trying new things, making mistakes, embracing innovation and thinking outside the box. They're, they're wanting to play things safe or they don't have enough, enough empowerment from their leadership to feel like they have the latitude to be able to take that initiative and be like, Hey, we could do this. Or what if we thought about it from this perspective? You exactly. Know? Well, and we take it for granted if we're in the military, like an AAR, right? An after action review. How many companies go through something and then they stop everybody at the end of the event or the project, or whatever, and say, okay, let, let's, let's, what do we do? Right. What do we do wrong? Let's talk about it. What are, what are the kinds of lessons we've learned and how can we make a better shot? Okay. Yeah. Take a half an hour. Let's come back and reload and do it again. They don't do that. No, nobody does that. It, it's, it's, I, I, I know, I know, I know I'm hard on them by saying that, but I'm also very aware that the military spent millions and millions and millions of dollars starting on the day that you first took your first ASVAB all the way through grooming, training, and prepping you for everything we're saying people should do. Yep. And, and that's one of the big shocks, right? When you get out of the military, you come out and you don't have that bond. You don't have that trust. You don't have that, you, that whole sense of that group brotherhood, sisterhood, all together kind of thing, because everybody gets in their car and drives off at 445 every day, whether the project's finished or not. And you're like, it's just not part of the way you were, you were raised in the military, right. but it, but it's natural for civilians. Their job is to, to feed their families and pay the bills. It's not to, it's not to save, you know, save the country for, you know, you know, forgotten country. Then that's not their job. That's not their focus. That's not their mission. So we're so used to the, we're covering all of us and we have a mission that's serious and we get out and the mission may not be that serious and nobody else seems to be taking it serious. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's an odd transition. It was, uh, it was really interesting for me because I started off initially enlisted, um, and then put stripes on my chest, became a non-commissioned officer and then transitioned over to the commissioned officer side of the house later in my career. One of the things that I used to tell my soldiers when I was an NCO is, is that, you know, and I'm sure you probably have heard this slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Right. right? Um, kind of one of those sayings that most people in the military are like, Oh yeah, yeah I got it. Right. But it's one. Well, it's I've used that with my kids. Um, I've got five kids, ranging ages from five to sixteen, and I've said that with them enough to where when things happen in life, that's the approach they have. They aren't immediately reactive to things. They pause. They assess, and then they take deliberate action because they're they've been conditioned to this this culture, this mindset. It's like, hey, not everything has to be responded to immediately. Take a moment to pause to assess: is this an immediate and direct threat that needs to be responded to immediately? If not, okay, let's assess a little further. Let's see how can we mitigate risk. How can we resolve this? You know, from a position of adaptability and resilience. What's the intent and end state that we're looking for as a resolution, and how can we get there in the most efficient way? Right. Right. So even my kids who haven't been haven't been conditioned, so to speak, um, institutionalized by by one of the, the the army or the navy, the military brands, by their organizational culture, they were still able to over a course of time kind of assimilate and um, and absorb this mindset and this culture 
to where it became a normal way of life for them. So I firmly, I firmly believe that this is something that that we can we can expose civilian companies, corporate companies, things like this, small business owners who don't have a frame of reference from the military or from from a branch of service. We can expose them to these things and really leverage a lot of this new understanding to see tremendous improvement, tremendous in gains, tremendous increase in productivity and profitability and things like this in their organizations just by providing them some of these tools. You're talking about uh, chaos and crisis and things like this. What are some things that that leaders need to be aware of or or should they be talking to their teams about when it comes to leading teams through chaos, such as scaling, growing rapidly, strategic pivots, dealing with competitive threats, things like that. What, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about in terms of that? Well, kind of like the, the way you train your team to deal with crisis, you have to let them know that that's just a part of the business. That's a part of everybody's responsibility, job description. And, and don't be afraid of crisis. We plan, we prep for crisis, we drill, prepare, so when it happens, we we can handle it and we can minimize the the downside consequences. Chaos to me is more of a, of a larger environment, not you know, like the fog of war, the chaos of combat, right? Yeah. So how do you train people in the military for that? Well, you try to simulate kind of crazy. You do a lot of different ways you can do it. You know, one way is from a planning standpoint is you say, you know, here's the information, put your plan together, you know, rehearse and brief it, now go and then they're in the helicopter or they're they're in the armored vehicle, whatever it is. And somebody goes, everything's changed. Now you're going to, you know, and then the whole plan goes out the window. Now, the more experienced you are, the more you realize as you're prepping the plan, I always called it the plan for show. <laughs> and a plan for show and a plan for go. The plan for show, everybody, they're jaded the, the more experienced they are. They all know that this is probably not going to be the way we do this because the weather's not going to be like they think it is right now. There's not going to be 10 guys. There'll be 100 guys, you know, on and on and on. And, and special ops missions, for sure, are like that. The targets move, the targets of opportunity show up. And um, anyway, you have to prepare people for that because that's the chaos part. So another way of looking at, at chaos is messiness. Think of rapid prototyping organizational structure. Yeah. Multiple small baby steps in phases towards where you want to go. You know, it's it's not really a band-aid off fast scenario. It's a band-aid off slow, but you're you're slowly kind of propagating the whole organization, depending on how big it is, it's even more important to do this, towards that new cardinal direction. So the pivot, you know, you're going straight north, now you're going to go northeast. So you have to bring the whole organization over there and you have to plan back from when you want to arrive there and say, all right, how long is it going to take resources and everything? And if I have to transition talent, platform systems, processes, uh, other kinds of resources and allegiance uh, allies outside of my company, I have to think all that through and say, okay, because... If I do this and it's a continuous kind of stretching and flexing and changing, it's going to create this chaos. It's going to create to the average person in the company. It's going to look like nobody knows what the heck they're doing. <laughs> we were going north. We've been going north. We've been going north for 10 years. I got here, you know, 15 years ago, we were going north and we were organized this way. And all of a sudden now we're doing virtual stuff and we're heading that way. We're going to have a shoe factory attached to the company. And they're like, what's this all about? So you have to prepare everybody for the chaos that you actually incite, which is what I just described, where you decide to do something, a new strategy. I was working with a $4.5 billion manufacturing firm uh, about two years ago, and they were about to audaciously decide to double their uh, double their revenue after being around for like 35 years. And we're trying to do it in 48 months. Oh, wow. And I, so this was the first conversation, right? And I said, well, okay, 
What's wrong with that? Well, everybody's smart enough to know if we have to double the revenue, think of it this way. We're going to run a marathon and you can run a marathon in 20 minute miles. I want you to double the speed. So everything in their minds was everything's doubled. Double the work, double the pain, double the hours, you know, and everybody freaked out. What's going to happen to me? They all thought this is an unachievable thing and it was crazy. So the first backlash after the strategic plan was kind of laid out was, oh my God, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to be able to make it. I should probably start looking for another job. I don't think I can go twice as fast as I'm going right now or work twice as hard. I mean, it was all that kind of stuff right. because to them, it was crazy. And that was self in, self-imposed strategic change, right? So, and if it's a merger or an acquisition, you have the same kind of thing. Chaos. Oh my God. Am I going to be able, are they, they going to keep me? Are they going to get rid of me? Who am I going to work for? What color is the building going to be that we work in? I mean, on and on. And people just get really wrapped up in that. But the more you prepare, especially your, your senior leaders, because they're the ones that have to convey and calm everybody down and keep their eye on the prize, so to speak. The more you get your, your subordinate leaders to understand the value of negotiating this chaos in a sensible, calm manner with, with, with poise, and you do it in incremental steps and you brief everybody, everybody slowly realizes that it's just a little step a little step, a little step. It's not, we're not going to eat the whole watermelon all at once. We're going to eat it one bite at a time. And if, and if that's actually how it plays out for a while, they start to trust you and they start to believe in it. And now the new normal is the whole pivot life. They, they start to forget what the old normal was and they start thinking the new normal was just this constant steady drip, drip, drip of change angling into a different different kind of business, a different market, et cetera. Yeah. But it, it, it's a leadership communication role. It's a it's a smart planning role and uh, it's preparation ahead of time, just like, like in the military. You prep everybody for what the battlefield experience is going to be like. And essentially everything you think is going to happen is not going to happen. And everything you thought would never happen is probably going to happen. So just chill out and just go with it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, something I, I started saying back in my army days and I've carried it forward. And I've told a lot of business leaders that I've talked to and have worked with and consulted with and stuff like this is that the first casualty of any operation is always plan A. Like, because yeah. a lot of times the issue is, is that people plan inside a vacuum. They don't plan for, for contingencies. They don't plan for real life. They don't, they don't consult with their team and be like, hey, poke holes in this plan that I came up with and, and identify those points of failure and, and create concepts um, so, I mean, you were, you were just talking about this a little bit, um, just a minute ago, what is, um, you, you wrote this, this first book, be nimble, be visionary is your second book that just came out and you're creating a new book. So utilizing your lens with the, the Navy SEAL experience and the professional experience after the teams, how do you view effective planning to, to take into account these things that and chaos is inevitable, like crisis will happen, whether it's Murphy's law happening or whether it's self-imposed, you know, in the crisis or chaos, how do you view the planning as a leader and how do you communicate that effectively to a team so they'll buy into it? Yeah. So the subtitle of visionary is strategic leadership in the age of optimization. And it kind of speaks to that question in a way that, you know, I make a distinction between optimization value, what it, what's, what value it has, but also the downside of optimization for optimization's sake. It's, it's essentially that you're so busy measuring the past in very minute and specific ways with, you know, enabled by technology and all that, that you think that that's your job as a leader to know what happened yesterday. And because of that, by default, when somebody says, what are you going to do? What's your next two-year plan? They just look at you and if they're pushed to actually come up with something, they take the last year and flop it forward times two. Yep. In other words, 
you know, past his prologue. And it's a very linear approach, but that's all these, these people have been trained. They don't teach leadership in college. They teach management and they do teach optimization and efficiency. And I'm a master black belt in Lean Six Sigma. They teach that kind of stuff. But optimization is what you do when you have a strategic plan that's that's worth pursuing. It isn't a strategic planning process. So you have to be kind of flexible and strong, like some materials are designed that way. The flexibility part is you have to be able to look out into the future and see what you think the future holds. You have to look and see if there are any threats on the horizon and if there's any opportunities. If you're going to seize the opportunities, you might do that pivot we're talking about. 24 months, I want to be over here where that opportunity is. But you might do the same thing if there's a threat coming regulatory changes, you know, you can come up with all kinds of different things that might happen. Yeah. So things like the gig economy, you know, you're in the taxi business and all of a sudden somebody comes up with this idea called Uber. So if I don't, if I don't do anything about it, I'm just going to be a victim of it 24 months when it, it starts to become the thing, right? Yep. So you might pivot to get away from it, from a threat. So that's the visionary part. That's the strategic conceptual part. And then once you know what you want to be, what profile of what success looks like, whether it's survive or thrive, depending on what the reason is that you have to make your move. Then you bring in the optimizers, you bring in the efficiency experts, you bring in all the detail planners, the project managers, and you say, build the plan back from there. And then they do it. And then you start executing those little baby steps. And that's okay because now they're optimizing and cleaning things up and tightening up the mess as you're going forward. But you've got the, the proper blend between kind of visionary strategic, strategic thinking and planning and optimized execution, you know, at the operational level. Absolutely. Looking at it, looking at it from that way, really this, uh, you know, it seems like there's a difference between optimization as as an objective, as a goal, as something that you're actually pursuing as a static point right? Versus there being a, some kind of actual strategy there that incorporates it. I, I'd love it if you could expound on that a little bit and really kind of, kind of unpack the difference between taking that strategy and how do we, how do we think about it as a process versus an objective? Sure. So think of this, think of uh, the turn of the last century and you have a company that makes wagon wheels for, for wagons that are drawn by horses. And it's a family business and the sons were trained by the, by the father. The father was trained by the grandfather. The business has been in existence since, you know, for say 50 years. And what you're known for is you make high precision parts and you make perfectly operating wagons. And every single day you come in and you're focused on quality control, materials, everything. Everything's done perfectly. And you get to about 1910. And if anybody asks you to describe your company, that's how you describe your company. Meanwhile, you don't realize that somebody's invented the car and you're about to be completely out of business. Yep. Optimization for optimization's sake misses misses the small and the big opportunities. And sometimes it doesn't look up from the railroad track to see the train coming. And when you sit down with people that are focused on optimization, I, I can tell pretty quickly, I can say to a business owner or somebody, I'll say, what's your strategy? And they think of it as a verb and they, they give me planning information with an ing like their ongoing planning business development sales whatever i said no 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 what's your strategy and they look at me weird and i said do you have something written down that says this is what i want to be when i grow up this is what i want to be this is how much i want to be able to get from an exit of the business i created any idea when that timeline comes do you have any other kinds of do you want to be the best in the town do you want to be the best in two towns do you want to have 10 10 stores by the end of, you know, and I'll tell you, you wouldn't believe how many people just stare at me. All I've been doing is making sure this store's really, really well, well run and everything. They're, they're basically operational experts trying to optimize to expand margins. And if they have any kind of bigger thought, it's about where can I get my next customer? It's not about doing anything more grand than that. And most of them have not thought about their exit. So they're building something. They don't even know if it's going to have any value down the road. So you can have a, you know, an old 
five and dime general purpose store. And again, same scenario, you're working your butt off. It's been around, you know, for 30 years, your family did it and everything in the Walmart. I mean, you see the bulldozers, you see people building something old Mr. Smith's farm, you know, used to be there. Now it's not, you don't even look, you're not even curious, you don't care because you don't think that way. You're thinking about when that bell rings on the door and the next customer's coming in and then all of a sudden you find out it's a Walmart and it's too late. Yep. They, they already put you out of business when they bought the land from the farmer. You The, the clock started ticking in that moment. You had to decide how you're going to reinvent yourself or sell your store to somebody really quick that doesn't understand that Walmart's coming into town. Yep. You know, these are the kinds of things that you have to have, you know, as they say in the military, your head on a swivel and, and you have to kind of zoom out, look around 360, have some awareness of your business environment and the future, push it out a little bit, a couple of years, and then come back into optimize and, and look at the detail. But as a leader, as a business owner, you got to be doing that all the time. Every day, Absolutely. or else the universe comes up and slaps you upside the head. Well, I mean, it's one of those things, like the only thing guaranteed is change. The market will change, clients' needs will change, client preferences will change, things like this. And it's it's inevitable. Things are going to change. So if you don't have, like you said, that situational awareness, not only of what's going on in your company, but what's going on in the market as a whole, what's going on in your niche, how are things evolving and adapting? And are you keeping up with them? Are you effectively leading change within your organization? Yeah. Stability is a fantasy. The, the universe is in a constant state of motion and change. Uh, uh, Madame Curie that, that discovered, I think, radium, she has a quote that the universe abhors stability because that's not what the universe is all about. Everything is either devolving, evolving, modifying, morphing, changing. Well, I don't care if it's the weather. I don't care if it's the, the uh, topography, the geography, the tectonic plates. I mean, everything all the time. So, if you think stability and locking things down is a is a an honorable objective as a manager or as a leader, you're just you're just fooling yourself. You're trying to get a control rush that you got things under control that it, it's stable. I got it. You know, well, while you're doing that, two other competitors just leapfrogged you because they've come up with ideas that you weren't thinking about because you were trying to lock things down the way they are or they always have been, and they're crushing you. You know, six months later, you go, what what happened? There yeah. you go. That's what happened. People aren't looking at it through the right lens. They're really trying to provide that that predictability and that expectation management so that they know what to expect when they come into work every day. And they're not looking at that and they're not communicating that through a lens of having that, that long-term vision and that long-term strategy that then drives the mission of the company and drives the logistics and operations that underpin that mission. It's like, yes, you can have expectation management. You can have the predictability, but only if you, only if you communicate to your team, to your organization and to the market like hey this is where we're going as an organization you know this is how we're going to show up for the marketplace and it's and it's from a visionary strategic perspective instead of instead of that that very narrow focus managerial integrator perspective where they're only focused on the thing right in front of them right so question for you looking back on all of your experience as as a team member, a team leader, a CEO, a business expert and consultant, author, all of these amazing things that you've done. If you had to take all that experience and point to one thing that was probably the most valuable thing that you learned over the course of, of your life, your experience, you know, and you had to put it on a bumper sticker or a poster or something like that. What, what is the, the number one thing that you've learned that you believe has served you better than, than any other thing? So I've kind of put it into three steps. It, all three of the steps I kind of did independently of each other, but then I started thinking about it and they, they relate to each other in a progression. The first step is intellectual humility. And what it means is that you have to ground yourself and clear your mind of all your your accolades and all your failures, because if you don't, that is coloring your judgment 
that's coloring your your the way you make choices. You're either arrogant because you've been on a run on a on a on a string of successes, or you've had a couple of failures, and so now you're you're reticent to make the decision or you're reticent to take chances. So intellectual humility means you clear all that out and you try to be as open minded and as objective as you humanly can be. And that's step one. That sets you up for step two, which is intellectual curiosity. And what I mean by that is curiosity in all things to take in information, inputs, insights, ideas from not just the people around you, not just the people that look like you and sound like you, but true diversity of thought outside your industry. Even talk to other other people that you know, they happen to be lawyers or they might do do something radically different than you and just talk to them in general about their business and maybe throw a couple of things that, that you're looking at that you're not sure you have a handle on. And you'd be amazed at how many crazy ideas and I've seen this over and over again, come from an asymmetrical source that has nothing to do with your industry, but it's your industry is ripe for that move. Something that, that some supply chain problem that was solved 10 years ago in oil transportation or something is suddenly the answer to the problem you've just run into because the world changed on your industry, right? Yep. So that that what that does is so if you're curious and you're open-minded to start with the intellectual humility, you're now absorbing all this stuff and you're honestly absorbing strange information, right? And then the third thing is intellectual creativity. So that's the that's kind of the one, two, three punch. If you if you're truly intellectual intellectually curious every day, all the time, any 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 source, webinars, documentaries, people on the street, friends, books, and of course people you work with, but you want to kind of get out of just smelling everybody in the elevators, ideas, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um you get to the point where now you're ready to truly be intellectually creative because it's going to be unique. It's going to be breakthrough creativity. And this doesn't have to be applied to inventing something. This is this is applied to the challenges that land in a leader's lap sometimes every day. And somebody comes at you and they got a problem, they want to solve it. And you just jump on the old formulas and the old football plays. Well, then you've just skipped the intellectual humility part because you're just automatically taking everything you know and saying, that'll fix this, which is arrogant. Yeah. Right. I don't care what I don't care if you went to Harvard, if you went to Harvard 10 years ago, whatever the problem is, it's been laid at your desk is probably not what they told you about in Harvard 10 years ago. The world has turned a few times. So you need to you need to have that first step, the second step, and then you can start really creating solutions. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's a big project. Maybe it's a completely new company. But that's 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 what I've kind of come down to. Those three things, intellectual humility, intellectual curiosity, intellectual creativity. Well, that's fantastic. That is such a such a great trifecta of tools for every leader to have in their toolkit to really to look at things through that lens and to to self-assess, self-analyze, and to be able to apply that stuff to their situation with their leadership with their team, with their organization, with whatever issue, problem, concern, a moment of crisis or chaos that they're dealing with. Um, I think that's so, so applicable and, and it's so easy for people to remember and understand. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Sure. As we're transitioning into the last part of this, uh, this podcast episode, I'd love to know if people are fascinated um, about what you've had to say. They'd love to find out more about you. They'd love to work with you or to pick your brain on some stuff to see what it would look like to be able to collaborate or work with you. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? So my author's website is martystrongbenimble.com and there's access there to both my business books and my novels, a lot of my articles and things like that. Uh, as I said earlier, I write the novels under ML Strong. Uh, all the proceeds of all my novels go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation and there's a special program called MLAP it focuses on TBI and post-traumatic stress disorder. So since 2017-ish, um, those proceeds have been going there. The, the business books, I, I do that as a as a business. So they 
the proceeds go to me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you can either look me up on Amazon under ML Strong or Marty Strong for the business books or go to martystrongbnimble.com. Awesome. And for our listeners, the uh, the links that he just mentioned, we will throw those in the show notes along with a summary of all the key concepts and topics and things that Marty and I talked about today. So be sure and grab a copy of those. Marty, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your insights with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Benjamin. All right, everyone. In this episode, we dove deep into the characteristics of crisis and chaos, defining a crisis as a temporary event demanding a technical or tactical solution, while chaos is seen as an environmental condition. The perspective adopted from the U.S. Navy SEALs holds that a team's strength is directly proportional to the time its leader invests in developing and training each member, encompassing not just their own roles, but an understanding of everyone else's roles as well. A lack of cross-training leaves teams fragile, susceptible to failure, and lacking the cohesion necessary to effectively address issues. Cross-training is more than just teaching team members new skills. It also involves evaluating team capabilities and simulated crisis scenarios, regularly engaging in exercise where obstacles and challenges are introduced can help teams develop resilience and versatility, equipping them to navigate scenarios like a hospitalized team leader or a suddenly reduced client budget. It is essential to emphasize the importance of effective, valuable training that pinpoints potential points of failure, key team roles, and critical skills required for success. These simulations, particularly if they revolve around scenarios that have previously impacted your team or competitors, can be invaluable in building resilience and exposing cross-training gaps. The receptiveness of a team to this rigorous training process is indicative of a positive company culture that encourages ownership, accountability, and initiative. Conversely, a culture that creates an aversion to these qualities may need addressing, particularly as the expectation to navigate crisis scenarios is part and parcel of every team member's role, irrespective of their specific duties. Preframing is vital. Each member should anticipate crises and be confident that their training prepares them for success. As business conditions change, whether through growth, expansion, introduction of new products, or organizational restructuring, teams should expect ensuing stress and crisis. As leaders, it's imperative to anticipate crisis conditions, have a mitigation plan in place, and ensure the team's awareness and confidence in this plan. As a leader, you're tasked with balancing a backward and forward-looking lens. You must evaluate past data for optimizing team processes while ensuring your focus on past performance doesn't inhibit your ability to anticipate future challenges. Optimization, after all, should serve future development and growth, not just refining existing procedures. The essence of business strategy is a concrete plan with a clear beginning, end, and a specific objective. Be it a phased plan to sell your brand for a hefty sum, increase market share, or expand your operations, your strategy should be concrete and goal-oriented, not an open-ended approach to business. Finally, we discuss Marty's three-step process for accelerating leadership growth and development, centered around intellectual humility, curiosity, and creativity. Step one, intellectual humility requires grounding yourself, shedding past accolades and failures to view the present objectively. Step two, intellectual curiosity necessitates seeking diverse perspectives and insights from those outside your immediate circles and even your industry. It's this curiosity that often sparks disruptive and innovative approaches to your business. The culmination of these steps is step three, intellectual creativity. By continuously practicing humility and curiosity, leaders can unlock breakthrough creativity. 
catalyzing transformative ideas, and fostering an instinctive problem-solving mindset. In considering the rich topics we've covered in this episode, I'm struck by the real-world significance they hold for leaders like us, navigating the often turbulent waters of team development and strategic growth. Take the concept of crisis and chaos, for example. To make it more concrete for you, let's borrow a page from history. In 1962, a manufacturing defect led to the infamous Tylenol poisoning crisis. Johnson & Johnson, the parent company, faced a short-term event that required immediate tactical solutions. So it's a crisis. Their swift ethical response to the crisis not only managed to limit damage, but also strengthen their brand reputation displaying leadership under fire. Yet, in parallel, they also had to navigate the chaos of a shifting environment, including increased regulatory scrutiny and changes in consumer trust. By distinguishing between the crisis and the chaos, Johnson & Johnson skillfully dealt with the immediate problem and managed a longer-term fallout. This is a lesson for all of us. Crisis and chaos are not synonyms, and understanding their nuances can make us more effective leaders. As we reflect on team development and cross-training that we talked about, a sports analogy often comes to mind. For those of you old enough to remember, you remember the 1992 U.S. Olympic Dream Team with the likes of Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird? They were formidable because they were more than a collection of star players. Each member could play various positions, making them unpredictable and dominant. So too, in business, cross-training doesn't merely protect us against the unforeseen absence of a team member. It enriches our collective knowledge base, encourages innovation, and nurtures a truly collaborative spirit. And... Reflecting on optimization, I'm reminded of Kodak. They were pioneers in the photographic film industry, yet they stuck to optimizing their film business, neglecting the rise of digital technology. Today, Kodak is a textbook example of a company so caught up in perfecting what they did that they failed to notice the future passing them by. The stark reminder for us to balance our pursuit of refinement with an openness to innovation and adaptation. Remember, we're not just leaders, we're architects of change, stewards of growth. Our teams look to us for guidance, inspiration, and solutions. We must remain steadfast in the face of crisis, adaptable amidst chaos, and committed to continuous learning. Leadership in the end is an exciting journey rather than a destination. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. If you resonate with this podcast, be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes we're gonna be putting out. Also, I would personally appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other people who would enjoy this content can find it more easily. Also, if you know someone who would like this episode, be sure and share it with them and encourage them to come check out what we're doing over here. You can use the link in the episode description to connect with me on social media. And if you haven't already, go grab a copy of my newest best-selling book, The Antidote. It will absolutely transform the way you think about leadership and developing teams. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves exceptional leadership and you can be that leader. Mm -hmm.